We at Global Nomad Hacks are peace heroes. By playing Peace and Harmony program during this episode, we help create one million pockets of peace by dissolving stress and tension. To be your own peace hero and get your own copy, go to peaceandharmonydownload.com. Welcome back to Global Nomad Hacks. Today, I'm excited to introduce a new friend to you. His name is David McNeil. He also is a podcaster love podcasters and love sharing their stories too. But his podcast is called Expat Empire. Talk about relevant for our global nomads. So welcome, David. Thank you so much for having me, Heidi. So obviously, you're an expat and you are doing things to support expats. How did you fall into this space? What's what's your story, David? Sure. Well, it gets to be quite long, but I'll try to keep it as short as I can. It's I, I was born and raised in the United States, but I started studying Japanese and getting interested in the Japanese culture and language when I was 12 years old. And uh, after many years of study and going to Japan for the first time when I was 17, and again when I was 19 during one-month trips over the summer between high school and university years, I came back to the United States and I thought, this is the place that I want to be. But the next time I go there, I don't want to just be a tourist. I want to actually be living there. I want to stay. So it took many years for me to be able to make that happen. But I finally did move there, jumping forward a bit in 2014. So I moved to Tokyo then, stayed there for two years, and then decided to move on to other places. Now that I had knocked that one off the list, I went to Berlin, Germany after that for three years. And now I've been living here in Porto, Portugal, actually just outside of Porto, since November of 2019. So it's been a good long ride in a couple of different countries, lots of travel as well. And now what I'm focused on is indeed Expat Empire and helping people to get inspired to move abroad and showing them how they can do it. So when you initially did this, obviously, you know, like many of us, we get the travel bug as a young, at a young age and realize there's a whole big world out there and I want to be part of it. Did you travel on your own? Were you a digital nomad? Did you, were you brought there by a company? Were you a, a love refugee? What was your story and, and sort of the instigation or the ability to actually make that move? Yeah, so all of the moves that I've done that I've just talked about have all been by finding a job at a company based in those locations. So every time I've moved, it's been for a new company. And that's been both a challenge, but also a blessing because it's given me so many great opportunities. And I've really been able to pinpoint the places, the locations that I want to move to. Uh, The challenge is, of course, finding the right opportunities there. So it's been lots of ups and downs, but that's been my, my main way of going abroad into different countries so far. Going forward, I'm looking past the current situation in hopes of being able to spend more time living, let's say, like a digital nomad in some other places, but having a home base here in Portugal. Nice. And how did you end up in Portugal? I mean, Portugal is a beautiful place, of course. And as we talked about a little bit in the green room, it's got great surfing and lots of, you know, a good draw there for people who like that part of their lives. But, you know, what was the draw for you in particular for Portugal? And obviously you love it that much that it wants, you want it to be your base now. Yeah, it's uh, it's been an interesting process to finding and falling in love with Portugal. So I visited for the first time. I did this trip around Europe uh, while I was taking these interviews in China and Japan. And that's when I got the Japan job back in 2014. But I took this nine-week trip around Western, most of Western Europe, and I went to tons of cities. And at the very end of my trip, I went to Porto and Lisbon, and I went all the way around, uh, all the way now to the West Coast, of Europe. And I just loved it. And it stayed in the back of my mind. I guess I should say it was behind Berlin, though. So Berlin was still my first pick out of all the places that I went in Europe. And so when I was in Berlin, I met my 
wife, who eventually became my wife while we got married there in Berlin. And soon after we started dating and going on trips and just thinking about the future, we started talking about, well, where is after Germany? And I had said, because I loved it so much and I just still had that super adventurous wanderlust spirit, I said, Vietnam. And she said, ah, maybe not. How about Portugal? <laughs> and uh, she had never been to Portugal, but I had, and I, I told her it was great. And she had this good impression of it. And so we visited in October of 2018. We only stayed for one week, a couple of days in Porto, a couple of days in Lisbon, but we just fell in love with it. And uh, again, it was a matter of finding the right job there and finding the right opportunity. So it took another almost a year right after. But then we, we've moved here and yeah, it was absolutely the right choice and we love it here. So, I mean, obviously the whole process of finding, finding the right space, finding the right job, finding ways to actually make that move, get the visas, all of that. That's part of what you cover, as I understand. Can you explain a little bit about some of the challenges that people come across, but also maybe some of the tips and tricks that you've discovered along the way to give you that fluidity to be able to just pick a place and say, I'm going there and making it happen. Yeah, it's definitely something that I focus on with Expat Empire now in terms of our consulting services and helping people figure out not just where the best place would be for them if they don't already have something in mind, but then figuring out indeed the visa, the job, the online work, if that's a possibility, all of that stuff as well. In terms of my own experience, really when I when I travel it's always with an extra eye toward, is that a place that I'd want to live? And if so, how would I be able to make that happen? It's always like in the back of my mind. And to be honest, most places don't check all the boxes for me. You know, there are a number of those that I've also, that, that list changes over the years, right? And through your experiences, through your priorities, all of that. So at first for me, it was, I need to see all the big cities in the world and I want to live in them and just explore them. So that was Tokyo and Berlin. And now things have chilled out a little bit. And indeed, I'm in a much more calm, relaxed place. I'm, I'm just outside of Porto and a more yeah, surfing kind of beach-oriented, small-town vibe. And so we absolutely love that. And so that list does change. But I think when you really think about your priorities, what you want in a location, it can be things like, of course, safety, climate, cost of living, friendliness of people, the job opportunities. There's so many different factors that come into play that you really have to figure out what those priorities are, what the nice-to-haves are, what the deal-breakers are, what the must-haves are, and then put those in priority. And then, and then indeed, just travel around or try it. Some people go sight unseen, but in my experience, I've gone to places that I really felt a good vibe there, a good energy, and I felt like I just wanted to spend more time in this place. Yeah, I've, for sure. And there's so much more to it. I think that the one thing that I that I really hear so much from what you're saying that I think a lot of people don't consider is when you're traveling around, think about, is this someplace I would like to settle? And mm -hmm. and that during different life stages, there's, it may be a different place. And certainly we've right. experienced that. My husband and I tend to be on sort of a seven-year rotation. You know, often it's, oh, we'll go there for two years. And then we end up being there for five to seven years. Our next move, we're like, okay, well, how about if we have places, several different places that we can mm -hmm. sort of look at as sort of legacy that we'll return to, but you don't have to be there year round. What about that? Right. But there's all different approaches to sort of where you want to set your hat. And one of the things that, you, you know, that people may not consider is sort of what are those priorities? What are the things that you need to check off? Do you provide people sort of a checklist of sort of or a process 
for identifying what, you know, where, what is your where, you know, not, mm-hmm. not the what is your what, but what is your where? Where do you want to be and what checks those boxes? Yeah, absolutely. It's a process of having some in-depth, uh, thorough conversations and asking some of the tough questions about, okay, how are you going to be making money there? Is that going to be something online? Is it going to be a pension? Are you wanting to work for a local company? Okay, if that's the case, what are your skills? How can you make that happen? Will it balance with the budgets there? How about you know a safety concern for you? How progressive of a place do you want? How much? How important is weather? Because at least to me, that's super important. Huge. As well. So <laughs> you know, there's there's so many different aspects, but I think an interesting part of the job is definitely being able to have those conversations with people that may not have thought through those questions before. And so it's typically a process of have you considered this or have you thought about this? And maybe even in the process of discussing it they realize, oh, actually, I'm looking for something different than what I thought. And that just that happens with, you know, people's jobs, with relationships, with friendships. And it turns out with cu- countries as well. So, yeah, it's been a good process. Oh, absolutely. And the, and the stories that people capture from those experiences, sometimes it's those surprises where you're like, I never would have thought of living here or I never would have right. thought this place would feel like home. And there's also that sense of, I've certainly felt it, and I'm sure most of you out there have, have felt it at some point. You're traveling in a place you've never been before, and you feel like you're home. That, to me, is sort of the trigger of, I could live here. It's that feeling of just comfort. And, you know, with the people that you meet, with the places you're in, and you may be, you know, in a heather field in the middle of Scotland, and you're all of a sudden like, wait a minute, there's something ancestral in this in me. I feel like right. I've come home again. Is that something you talk with your clients about when they're trying to identify a sense of place? Yeah, definitely. That's a conversation that we have. Of course, sometimes, indeed, they do have some country already in mind, whether it's, it is uh, Scotland or China or wherever it might be. Other times, it, it is more of an open discussion. They have some ideas. But I think one of the challenges is people look on things like Instagram and uh, TripAdvisor, all these different websites and places and platforms and find really cool photos. And sometimes they fall in love with a photo or the idea of the place, even if they've been a tourist. And I think it's important to also get out of that idealistic kind of mindset and be more realistic with what's your life actually going to be like when you're on the ground there. And this is a lot of the conversation that ends up happening and just making sure that we're getting not just someone's opinion or whether it's mine or theirs or a third party or some nice video on YouTube, but the reality of the data, the numbers, what people are saying, surveys from people who are actually living there. Of course, talking to more people on the ground, tapping into my network as best as possible. But I think that's something that I'm seeing as well, is just breaking down that idea of, wow, it looks so pristine in that photo, but what's my daily life actually going to look like? Do you find that there are certain personality types that are more suited to being an expat or to really thriving as an expat rather than being an expat, someone that can thrive as an expat? And if so, what kinds of things do you think are sort of inherent in personality types and other things that can be learned? Hmm. That's a great question. Um, And especially breaking down the idea of what's inherent versus what's learned. I think definitely the people that I talk to have at least some sense of that wanderlust or some sense of curiosity and adventure and maybe it came later in life. You know, some people it's now now they're approaching or they're in their retirement years and they're thinking, I don't 
need to necessarily be in this place anymore. And I had all those years of working hard at my job, wherever it was in my career. And now I'm looking to try something totally different. And maybe they didn't even travel that much or get a chance again to see the countries, but just looking for something fresh and new and, and a new experience. And so I think at least at the point where we start having those conversations, they're certainly curious, they're adventurous. And then it does break a little, or not break, but change a little bit based on where they're looking to move to. So if you're thinking about a place like Japan or China or, you know, basically a very far off culture, or even one within Europe, but it's maybe more central in their language. It's a different language than the one that you speak. That tends to just be a little bit more challenging than some of the easier places, let's say, that are those first world countries that are English speaking and you get those direct opportunities and that's kind of an easier way to ease into that lifestyle. So I think kind of changes a little bit based on what they're looking at and what they're looking for, but something else I think that's really important. And I think this can be learned and I've learned it over the years is the ability. It really helps me to settle into different countries and cultures and context by listening and being more of a listener than an actor or a speaker first. And so I've learned that, you know, the hard way. <laughs> and, uh, but it's, it served me really well. And I think being just recognizing that you're not from that place, you're willing to learn, you're willing to try to speak the language of even a little bit that goes a long way and just not sit, not be the one leading the charge, but maybe being toward the back of the group and being shown or learn watching first. And then the second time, maybe you lead a bit more. I think that's something that can be learned and is quite beneficial. Oh, absolutely. Listening is so key. And it's it's sort of that observing first rather than just mm -hmm. trying to throw yourself or your culture into the environment that you're moving in. As we both know, a lot of things have been changing in the last year and that, you know, pandemic world is pandemic world. We're coming in. I wouldn't say we're coming out of it yet, but we're coming into a new phase where we're really yeah. recognizing that the future of work and workplace is changing. And what does that mean in terms of the demographics of the type of people that will seek out opportunities as an expat and helping them balance expectations of, you know, it's not just go move to some romantic island and, you know, bring your laptop. Have you seen that shift in your clientele and how do you help them balance those expectations? Yeah, definitely. I've certainly seen an increase in people that are thinking about possibilities for working online, for taking the job on the road. Uh, whether that's just constant travel with tourist visas or trying to do something where they are working online, but long-term in one country, for example, here in Portugal. I think that change is happening, but I do think, as you say, there is a there needs to be just a, some education, better understanding about, well, how do you make that happen if you're working for a company in your home country and trying to take that abroad versus working online and recognizing while there's a lot of opportunities, are you going to be able to do the thing that you want to do or get the the rate, the, the wage that you're looking for? And indeed, even with some of the opportunities in South America, for example, you still have to be able to prove a sustainable income of you know, $2,500, $2,000, $3,000, uh, whatever it might be based in the country. And so just figuring out the process of getting from where you are today, which might be still in the US, for example, working for a company that expects you to come back to the office as soon as things lighten up a bit. And then thinking about, yeah, what's that life going to look like for me? There's so many pieces to the puzzle that you have to figure out. But it is a super exciting time because this transformation, this transition is happening right now, as you just talked about. And I know that you and all of your guests have, you know, very familiar with this, but it's super exciting to see. And I can't wait for things to 
indeed improve even further, not just for people's health and safety, but for seeing that next wave. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting. I had a conversation yesterday with my husband and we were talking about having hybrid meetings where you can integrate holograms. And I mean, this is just sort of the techie geek side of me. I'm all about the future of workplace and looking at hybrid solutions so that we can both physically be together, but for those who can't actually travel or don't want to for sustainability reasons, they can still participate Mm -hmm. in a way that feels like they're physically there and others feel like they're physically there. And he was saying, well, you know, this is going to kill the the tourism and the airline industry. And I said, no, it's not. It's a different opportunity. They need to evolve with it. Hotels need to evolve with it. Countries need to evolve with it. With these workspaces where, you know, whether it's collaborative workspaces that provide a place where you can go and participate as the hologram or whatever it is, but that you have these different changes. Are you seeing where, I mean, Portugal is one place and they're really trying to get updated on on connectivity so that they can accommodate a lot of the digital nomads that they've been inviting in. But in other instances, have you seen different adaptations or conversations about adaptations so that these countries that have been predominantly focused on tourism or at least, you know, sort of business tourism where you've got people coming in to do meetings, have you seen changes there or is that still a little lagging? I have heard about some of the changes that you're talking about. I saw, I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but there was a company that just raised a couple million dollars worth in funding in Japan to be able to have essentially like a large screen, I guess, that's at the edge of the conference room, where then the camera in the other office that's happening somewhere all the way across the world, you can get to peer into that view I didn't get the full thing. I'd love to experience it myself in person, but just interesting to see all of these, indeed, uh, holograms and different ideas of companies that are coming up all across the world, that one being in Japan, but I'm sure there's plenty popping up in the US and Europe and everywhere else. So I think in terms of those opportunities, they'll be there. Certainly more and more co-working spaces, more Airbnbs. I mean, every large city in Europe is having, well, housing trouble in a sense, in terms of supply, because they're changing to more short-term rentals. But of course, that gives great opportunities to people who are coming for a relatively short period of time. And yeah, here in Portugal, for example, I believe it's in the Azores, which is one of the islands off of Portugal, one of Portuguese territories. And I believe it's there that they're, they just recently announced that they're going to be having some sort of nomad hub there. So I mean, you know, and that that's not even in Portugal, let's say continental central Portugal, where already so many people are going to places like Lisbon. So huge opportunities. We're seeing more countries come out with digital nomad visas and things like that. One of the challenges is definitely the long, if you stay over, we never want to overstay your visa, but if you stay over a certain number of days in a country, you can also become a tax resident there. So all of these types of things will have to evolve or people will go to shorter places for shorter terms or go to countries that have evolved in that way. And I think this is the, I think a lot of countries now are seeing that this is the time to make those evolutionary changes such that they can draw these people in and, you know, create a great ecosystem and community and create a lot of tourism revenue and opportunity for locals as well. And we're definitely at the, at the beginning of a big wave. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you bring up a really good point. And I want to remind folks to go back and listen to, we've actually done a replay of Lisa Mitchell's episode but she is a financial whiz for expats. And I think that's something that's really important to recognize is that you are tax liable when you stay for a certain amount of days. That happens even within the U.S. If you're living in a state 
California is infamous for this. If it's over a certain amount of days per year, they tax you as a resident. And it's the same when you're traveling overseas. So there's a lot of different issues you want to make sure you know in advance so you can make sure you get your passport stamped or you have something that indicates that you're, you know, you've been moving around. A lot of those issues are things that people don't think about when they're, you know, they're taking on this, you know, this dream of being an expat or a digital nomad or just having the nomad life. And the other piece that also popped into my mind that just as a reminder is the insurance piece. And yeah. a lot of people don't think about the fact, does my, am I insured? Am I covered? Everything from like auto insurance to, you know, physical health insurance. Is that something that you guys also talk about when you're helping people move? Because some countries, if you're there for a certain amount of time, you become a resident and you're covered by their national health care system. But a lot of them, they sort of, you know, unless you become a, a national or at least a permanent resident, that's not an option. Yeah, absolutely. That's definitely a conversation that we have and something that people are thankfully relatively aware of, or at least let's say concerned about. So they know to be concerned about it. And so naturally be part of the conversation anyway, but it's it's always a key point. And so looking at indeed what their nationality or nationalities are currently, where they're looking to go to, what the opportunity there is, how long do they have to be there as a resident or as a permanent resident or as a, as a naturalized citizen to be able to access the public system? How does it compare to the private system? And of course, with nomads as well, indeed, you know, maybe they're on a plan in the US that allows them to be insured outside the US for a certain number of days, but if they wanna stay longer, what are some other opportunities? So there are more, it's interesting because there are more companies popping up that are focusing on ensuring the health and wellness of remote workforces or mm -hmm. people who are digital nomads. And so, there are those opportunities, they're popping up and more companies are seeing that this is necessary. So we've seen a massive increase in also like remote work job boards, let's say. So tons of those, more and more companies being open to that. And that will just create, could potentially create tax headaches for those companies. But as a result, now there are more services and opportunities for people to take it into their own hands or for companies to outsource that, recognizing that remote work will be something that stays for the future. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, to your point, it's uh, the companies that are offering remote work that are really going to have to do the paperwork behind it. But you also need to, if it's something new to your company, just be mindful that they are actually doing that and that, you know, they may, it may be new to them as well. So yeah, it's, it's a tricky situation because we are at that flexion point and the information is out there, the services are out there, but there also a lot of them are small and are not haven't really scaled yet to manage a, you know, multi-million person company or, you know, great intentions, but it's just this opportunity has now arisen for us to have that fluidity of movement in a very different way, which is really wonderful, but it also has its challenges and hiccups. So it's to be mindful of the the organizations behind it and whether they're able to you know, deliver what they're promising. I think we all need to be very careful about that too. Um, <laughs> well said, well said. Yeah, definitely check check the reviews, make sure everything looks good in the legal print. Um, yep. Yeah, because you'll be on the hook if it doesn't work out. Exactly, and you don't want that happening. To that point, it struck me, so you're living in Portugal. Are you becoming a Portuguese citizen? If so, is Portugal one of the places that you can have dual citizenship? That's always something that I think is a little bit tricky. I remember about 10 years ago when I was living in Sweden, there was a lot of conversation 
with peers that were living in Switzerland and, and several other different countries where they were not allowed to have both. And so they were, it was a question of, you know, where do you want to be? And do you want to give up your not naturalized? You want to, you want to take on your naturalized identity rather than your birth identity and challenges there. That's sort of a bigger question because mm-hmm. from, um, for most people these days, they're probably not looking at naturalizing somewhere. But even so, is that something that comes up for you with your clients? And what are some of the places yeah. that have been challenging for you? Yeah, for sure. So it was a huge, on a personal level, it was a huge part of this decision as well. So in Portugal, you can have dual citizenship. You can apply after five years. And I've heard of plenty of people being able to do that. And so that to me was not, it's not only a country that I love based on the people, the food, the weather, everything else, the surf. Uh, I'm not so good at it yet, but I'm working at that. But also just these, these great opportunities. And I have gotten a little tired after this many years of getting new visas, trying to get things renewed, being afraid of the expiration dates, getting ahead of it, government appointments. I'm not saying those will all disappear, but if, if I'm able to indeed apply and, and receive Portuguese citizenship, for example, then at least if I stay within the EU, that makes things a lot easier. So that's my personal goal. And it's definitely a part of the conversations with clients as well, because it's something that indeed a lot of people don't think about, or maybe they're, it's, it's always good to look at it and think about it before you decide if you want to do it or not. I mean, better to be at a country where you can do it and indeed have dual citizenship as opposed to going somewhere and not thinking about it, thinking eventually, oh, I really love it here. I'd love to be able to stay. I'd love to be able to become a citizen. Looks great. Oh, now I have to make a tough choice. So especially in the context of the broader EU, being in a place where you're able to do that, have dual nationality, for example, is just a great benefit. And not all countries enable that. In fact, I was in Germany before this, and I was already there for three years. And if I had stayed and tried to get German citizenship, then I would have run up against that problem and I would have had to choose. And so, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a personal choice, personal decision. Doesn't mean that you're going to go down that route or that you have to by any stretch, you get permanent residence and that handles a lot of the issues. Depends on, yeah, depends on your goals and your situation, but renouncing your U.S. citizenship, for example, is a big decision and um, not one to take lightly. So across all of those lines, yeah, those are a lot of the conversations that I'm having. And then, of course, there's the issue of kids, right? So I I don't know if you have kids, but I know that that's a really big for a lot of my expat peers and the the community that are are our listeners. We have a lot that are practicing that fluidity either with their kids or they've just become um, empty nesters, if you will. So they maybe have more fluidity to be able to move there. But there's always a challenge with, you know, children being born in a different country or Parents that are from two different nationalities, what does that mean? Do you take on your partner's nationality? As a love refugee, that's what I was. I became a Swedish citizen. It made everything much easier. It was fine. It wasn't just, okay, I'm going to be a Swedish citizen, but we were living there. We, we owned property. We were raising kids there. It made more sense that I could be part of society and be able to vote and participate in that way. And at the time, I was doing a lot of work in Africa, which I did not want to be traveling on an American passport. So it was sort of ticked all the boxes of, of course, I'm going to go through this process. But I think it can be a lot more challenging when you have a question of children and, you know, how do you make sure, for example, American children that are born overseas, sometimes it's not just a question of like, okay, I'm going to send in a form and my child is going to be an American citizen. 
It doesn't work that way, unfortunately. It's a lot more complicated. Is that something that you guys cover or is that, you know, and what are some of the things that have sort of stood out for you as either challenges or benefits to that? Yeah, it it is important for the people that are in that situation. So we do try to bring personalized attention to everyone's unique situation. And that's, of course, a lot of people's situations. And maybe they're not necessarily planning at that point for having that child abroad, but these are things that are probably still in the back of their minds. And of course, it does have an important impact on where they might choose to move to if that's something that they're thinking about. So yes, you really have to look at the, the laws and rules and regulations for if your child were to be born in a country, do they automatically get citizenship there? Or is that more of a process? And indeed, as you even talked about, these third culture Children, I believe, is a mm-hmm. C-C-K, right? <laughs> T-C-K. So, um, yeah, <laughs> third culture kids, I think, is the one. So, indeed, like figuring out not even just at the level of their nationality and citizenship, but even more so identity and the languages that they speak, which may be, you know, if you're constantly on the move, maybe a different one from mom and dad versus uh, where they're going to school, and maybe then they change countries and it's a whole different language. So, dealing with international schools versus local schools. All of those types of questions are super important. So we definitely try to give as much guidance as we can in that process, but it is still deeply personal decision and based on your timing and your situation. That said, there are great opportunities as well, to be frank, you're looking at the U.S. uh, tuition for university and thinking about how you might be able to leverage uh, an opportunity in Europe compared to that for much cheaper, if not practically free tuition. So I've also talked with plenty of people that have moved abroad in order to go to university or go to graduate school. And so that can create a whole different opportunity, not just from a visa standpoint, but experiential, and to be able to do that at a more affordable rate, perhaps, than what you're used to in your home country. So it's, it's a mix. It's a challenge, but it's also a ton of benefits as well. For sure. And I mean, as I mentioned before, and most of you who've been listening for a while know, I have two kids that are college age. And and so it is, you know, the decision is a lot sort of where do you go to school and where you feel your identity is tied to as well. It's not just what curriculum you want to study, but where are your people? Where do you want to be? And right. it's been an interesting process for me to watch my children choose where do, you know, where do they identify? My son identifies much more as European. My daughter is very Americana. She loves going over to, you know, back to, to Europe. But for her, like, this is home. California, like, she identifies as a California and New England girl. And so it's, it's just fascinating to see, you know, where that identity pops up, despite the fact that they spent, basically, they've spent the equal amount of time in both Europe and in the U.S. But mm. each one is individual. And, of course, right. we've encouraged them to go to school in Europe because it's more affordable. But we're also fortunate that they have choices. Yes. But I think that is a real gift to give our children, both in language and in a culture fluidity and the ability to choose. More choices we can provide for our children, as long as it's not overwhelming, I think it's a really wonderful gift that we can yeah. give. I'm, I'm, I'm a bit envious, to be honest, because I always wanted that growing up. So I had to kind of figure it out after university and... I did a study abroad in Singapore and all this good stuff, but I, yeah, I think it sounds like a a pretty ideal situation. So if anyone's wondering the effect that it might have on their children, at least from my biased personal perspective, I say go for it. Yeah, no, absolutely. 
David, it has been such a treat to have you on the show today. And I want to make sure folks can find you and find your work. What's the best way for them to find you, both your podcast and your consulting work? And what kinds of things are you guys offering there? Yeah, absolutely. So definitely check out expatempire.com. You can go there for a free ebook as well as scheduling a free 30-minute consulting call with me just to talk through your situation, what you're thinking about, whether it's traveling for the first time or moving abroad for the first time or even moving to a brand new country and you're already abroad and you've been doing it for a while. But I think what we offer in terms of thinking through your full situation, talking through uh, country ideas and potential scenarios, thinking through your taxes, thinking through getting a job abroad, starting to work online, if that's something that you're interested in, your visa, kind of the full, really the full gamut of different situations and opportunity. We try to take it on a really personalized basis. So would love just for people to contact us through expatempire.com. You can also find our blogs and books and podcasts there. So tons of content for free as well, but hope to definitely hear from folks and happy to share my insights and knowledge and give some tips. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. We'll make sure all of those links and everything are in the show notes so folks can find you. And if you want to dig a little bit deeper, feel free to reach out to David. And he sounds like a great resource. And, and who knows, he might take you out surfing if you're coming through Portugal. I'm, I'm gonna, you might have to teach me first. I'm going to hit you up. <laughs> or my son good. might. Uh, yes, please. Anyway, it has been such a pleasure and a treat to have you on. And thank you so much for the work that you do. Our global nomads certainly appreciate it. It's always nice to know there's good support systems out there for them. Thank you all for joining us today. I appreciate you spending the time with us and sharing this half hour or whatever it is we've gone today. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be with you. And I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Always appreciate it. If you do review us, let us know. We always love to give a little love back. And thank you all. Look forward to next time. Bye-bye for now.